Last week, we began a new teaching series in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And I jokingly said at the beginning of the message, hey, start looking for it, and by the end of the message, maybe you'll find it. Because it's not really a prominent Old Testament book like Genesis or Psalms, Daniel. Um, It's not often taught on. And uh, we talked last week about how it is confusing to read it. And one of the keys to reading it and understanding it is to have three eyes. You got to have one eye that's on Genesis 3. You got to have one eye that is on the text itself. And one eye has to be looking forward to the cross and the incarnation. Because all of that in between time, the fall and Jesus coming, is what Ecclesiastes is describing, man's search for meaning apart from God, apart from Jesus, pursuing avenues in this materialistic world, trying to find ultimate answers. Now, to show you that uh, you never know who's sitting next to you, I received this note uh, this week about the series from someone in our church, and she talks about how God used Ecclesiastes actually to bring her to faith in Jesus. Here's what she writes. I could hardly wait all week last week to come to Bethel and get started with the new series, Ecclesiastes. In fact, it could also be uh, true to say I've been waiting decades for this series. One reason being because I never have heard a series on the book of Ecclesiastes, but quite another reason being the book has a special meaning to me. As an unchurched, unsaved teenage girl, I was at a Catholic high school basically for the quality of the education. So I owned a Catholic Bible. What happened when I was a a very impressionable and artistically minded teenager, read Ecclesiastes, was that the message of vanity of vanity, all is vanity, really resonated with me. I was at the time reading the French existentialists and nihilists. I'm sure many of you were doing that this week as well. So the messages all kind of combined. In the infamous words of Freddie Mercury, Nothing really matters, anyone can see, nothing really matters to me, any way the wind blows. I read the book through a lens that didn't know to look forward to Jesus. So the message of Ecclesiastes depicted for me the absurd futility of existence. However, that sense of futility was rejected by some very small part of me. Something reared up and said, that can't be it, that can't be all there is, it simply cannot be so that nothing really matters and all is vain. There must be more. There must be a reason. It took several more years for reason to enter my life in the person of Jesus. But I knew as soon as I encountered him that here was every answer, the way, the truth, and the life. And everything mattered because he is everything. that cool? The absurdity of life led her to search for meaning. And that's, I think, part of what Ecclesiastes is here for. It's not here to discourage us. It's here to draw us into a deeper search for answers because life does feel absurd. And this provides a wonderful backdrop for our text today, which we're beginning in chapter 1, verse 12. And really, this section runs all the way through the end of chapter 2. And uh, there's some awesome stuff ahead. I hope that you'll be coming because there is just great. If you, you can look ahead right now and just see some of what's lying ahead for us because basically Solomon or whoever wrote this, Pseudo-Solomon, is going to 
explore avenues that in this world people go down searching for meaning and purpose in life. And uh, you'll see that that includes wisdom and uh, knowledge and reason, pleasure and self-indulgence, careful living, work and accomplishment. And each of these he is going to explore with all of his mental faculties and all of the resources that were at his disposal, only to find at the end of every one of them disappointment and futility, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, even in these things that the world provides. So that's where we're going. Today, we are going to do uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 12 through 18, and I'd like to read the text right now. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So the the preacher's first attempt at finding answers to life's problems is to pursue them with wisdom, okay, with wisdom. And I want to begin by making sure we understand what he's talking about when he says wisdom, because this can be confusing. You read through the Bible, there's huge sections of the Bible that encourage us that wisdom is good, that we are to live according to wisdom. You get to the book of Proverbs, for example, and you know, massive sections of Proverbs are encouraging us not to be the fool, not to live according to folly, but to live according uh, to wisdom. And then you get to Ecclesiastes, and he says here that wisdom is futile. Which sounds like a contradiction. Like, why would the Bible say in one place, wisdom's awesome, and in another place, wisdom is futile? And this comes down again to understanding Ecclesiastes and the particular way that Ecclesiastes is looking at the world. Remember, it is about, it is, it, it's, it's like Ecclesiastes is the one book of the Bible where you pretend there is no God. And he's trying to describe man apart from God, man searching for answers without God. And that includes now this area of wisdom. It is wisdom as if there is no God. It is man's wisdom. Wisdom without revelation. Wisdom without a Bible. Wisdom without a Jesus. And the starting point for man's wisdom is man. Okay? Now, a little chart here just to help you get this. And I've been lately in kind of a chart mood. Have you noticed that? I'm kind of liking these. All right, so just to describe the different ways that the Bible talks about wisdom, this is Ecclesiastes right here, that man's wisdom, the starting point is man, and man applies all of his intellect and all of his reasoning and all of his abilities, and in the end, it leads to confusion, okay, confusion. God's wisdom begins with the character of God, and it leads to truth, Because God is truth. 
And specifically for us, biblical wisdom for a, for a human being, it begins with the starting point is the fear of the Lord. And Ecclesiastes is going to say that, Proverbs says that. And that fear of the Lord leads us then to wisdom. So the Bible uses wisdom in different ways. This is Ecclesiastes' wisdom right here. This is what we're going to see in chapter 1. And uh, he is actually going to hint at this a little later in Ecclesiastes, but he doesn't do it now. So I hope that helps. He says here that I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. So here we have Solomon seeking out by intellect all of these different things that can be understood. And we need to remember the story of Solomon because with Solomon, we're not talking about an intellectual lightweight. Do you remember the story of Solomon? Solomon was David's son. He is anointed king over Israel. And after that, God comes to him in a dream and says, I'll give you anything you want. Now, that would be a fun conversation starter, like at a small group, wouldn't it? Hey, let's just say that God came to you and said, I'll give you anything you want. Let's go around the room and let's all say what we would pick. That'd be kind of fun to hear, wouldn't it? Okay? You might think to yourself, what would you say? And uh, some people, I'd world peace, you know, or I would choose, you know, peace in my home or marriage or just my kids or whatever it might be. Solomon had the wisdom to ask for wisdom. That tells me Solomon was already a fairly wise guy because he gives a remarkable answer. In fact, here it is in 1 Kings 3.9. Solomon responds, give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? That's a great answer, isn't it? And God's in heaven going, that's a great answer that you just gave. And he, he goes on to say, not only am I going to give you wisdom, I'm going to make you wiser than anybody else who has ever lived. I'm also going to give you all the things that you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you wealth, and I'm going to give you success. And God just lavished all of this, you know, success upon Solomon because he was wise enough to ask for wisdom. And the summary of how wise Solomon is, we find in 1 Kings 4, it says this, God gave Solomon very great wisdom and understanding and knowledge as vast as the sands of the seashore. In fact, his wisdom exceeded that of all the wise men of the East and the wise men of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else. He was a really smart guy, okay? Really, really smart. And Solomon takes that divinely enabled and enhanced intellect, and he applies all of those mental faculties, he says here, in a pursuit of meaning through wisdom and knowledge, meaning through human reason. And he draws now some conclusions after he has sought out all of these wisdom avenues he says, this is what it's like. Notice, uh, I actually did not write the, it's verse 13. He says, first of all, it leads to unhappiness. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Man's wisdom, apart from God, led to unhappiness. He thought about everything. He thought about everything that he could 
come to know. He sought out every knowledge that he could come to understand, and, at, and he took all of them to their logical conclusion, and at the end of that, he was depressed. And he says, this whole thing is an unhappy business that God has given man to be busy with. Depression, unhappiness. You know, if you read through history, the, the great, many of the great uh, intellectuals in human history You look in their story, their biography, and many of them had massive struggles with depression. Many of them take their own lives. They just, they they think about, they think about, they think about, and they come to the conclusion, what is the point? And they'll take their own life. Similar to what Solomon is saying, man, you, you take man's wisdom apart from God to its logical conclusion, there's nothing happy there. Nothing happy there. He, he compares it to something. He says it's like chasing the wind. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And this is a common metaphor in Ecclesiastes. It's like chasing the wind, okay? You ever, you ever like get in your car and you have some like receipt or some piece of paper that kind of falls out of your pocket and it catches in the wind and you just see it going off like that? It can be challenging getting that, can it? Have you noticed this? You're like, you know, stop it like that, stop it like there, stop it like this. And you're trying to try to catch that piece of paper when it's caught up in the wind. It's hard to catch paper that's caught up in the wind. It's even harder to catch the wind itself. And the metaphor is effective, I think, because we all understand I'm not fast enough to catch the wind. And even when you, if you were, what do you have when you catch the wind? Nothing, Right? It looks like something, it moves the trees, it makes massive snowdrifts in weeks like we've had here, right? It has an effect, but to actually have the wind, to capture the wind, is to have really nothing. And man's reason and knowledge, in the end, it's like that, it's, it's futile. Yeah, I've got a PhD, yeah, I've got amazing intellect and knowledge, I've read tons of books, I've, got, I've discovered all kinds of things, but in the end, what does it matter? It's futile. He goes on to talk about how exasperating this is. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And you may notice if you have a Bible with you, and I always encourage you to bring a Bible with you, that it is indented in the text. Do you see that? And it's indented because we believe that he's quoting a proverb of the day. Okay, What is crooked cannot be made straight. It was a a thing that people would say, over certain realities of life. We have, we have similar sayings like this one. It is what it is. Now that's either really profound or really stupid, isn't it? Like, it is what it is. And yet we understand that it applies to certain things in life that as much as we would wish they were different, they just are the way that they are. And we can try to fix it, we can try to make it different, but it's just in the end, it is what it is. Some things are broken beyond repair. And all of our attempts as human beings to create this kind of utopia thing, maybe through government, which of course this applies right now with the presidential thing that's going on, and all of the rancor and all of the interest, where is all of the energy behind all of the interest in the presidential election? Is it not in some kind of human hope that we would have, if the right person's in charge, then maybe this whole thing will get fixed. We'll have a panacea. It'll be utopia. 
Nirvana, pick whatever word you want. It's going to be awesome if only the right person could get in charge of our government and country. And yet, do we not acknowledge that for the most part, the things that are wrong in our society are kind of beyond repair? And it doesn't matter who's in charge. (laughs) You know, you think about tangles and knots. Who can figure out, for example, who's going to solve the Israeli-Palestinian problem? Is that one ever getting fixed? I can think of one person, and he's at the right hand of God right now, and not running for election, unfortunately. Is anybody really going to solve our national debt? I mean, maybe you could say, well, there's at least a possibility of that, but in reality, it kind of is what it is. Can anyone get cats and dogs to get along? <laughs> you can pray all you want about that. It's, a ta- it's, it's unfixable. There are certain things in the world that are like mathematical pi, right? And by that I mean the equation pi. I read a guy that quoted pi to 20,000, what was it? Digits, thank you. 20,000 digits, took them like 11 hours to quote this thing. And still there was more after that. They've had computers that have, you know, done these. It's, it's an unsolvable number. There are things in this world that are like mathematical pi. They cannot be fixed. And the reason for this, friends, it's, it wasn't always this way, right? But Genesis 3, when the fall happened, sin so twisted and contorted relationships and realities in this world that Romans 8.20 says that the creation was subjected to futility. Sin has twisted this world and society and relationships and people in such a way that the knot and the gnarl is so contorted that it's unfixable. And all of man's knowledge and all of the books that have written and all of the wisdom that is supposedly passed on and all of the books of the Library of Congress, you could know every word with perfect recall and still you're going to look at the world and say, it is what it is. It is broken. It is beyond repair. It's a tangled mess. If you've ever been fishing, you know how maddening it is when you get a knot in your line, and that knot becomes a snarl on your pole, and if it gets into the spool, forget about it, right? You, you, I've had them before when I've been fishing. I look at it, and, and you know, my dad's more patient. He gets all like, he's an engineer, so he's all like, well, this goes through here, and this goes through here, and I'm like, snip, gone. <laughs> I do not want to take the time to figure this knot out, because it just looks to me like, I don't know. Now, logically, it has to be solved because there's some way that it got knotted and can get unknotted. I just don't want to deal with it. It just is what it is. Done. It is so frustrating. And the world is like that. Ecclesiastes 7.13 will say it this way. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And that means that man cannot reason his way to happiness. Man cannot solve the basic problems that we have. We can't mathematize our way to answers. It doesn't matter how powerful the computer is that we create, it will not be able to figure all of this out. 
And all of the knowledge that we have about the universe and all of the things that we have discovered, we still haven't answered the basic question, one very simple question. Who am I? Why am I here? We can't even solve that one. Think of all the time that you take trying to fix the problems just in your life. I mean, look at this. Think of all the problems represented here, right? There's a a massive gnarl represented right here in this room. We lay in bed and we think about our marriage and we think about our family and we think about relationships and we think about work and we think about, you know, whatever it is in our neighborhood or something that's bothering us or whatever. We We ponder, we think, we strategize, we try to solve all of these problems and all of that thinking and all of that pondering and wondering does it actually fix anything most of the time the answer is no it doesn't we can't fix these things for the most part it is what it is it is knotted it is tangled it is broken And the preacher says this in verse 16, I said to myself, look, I'm wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. That's not a prideful statement, that's a statement of fact. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly, but I learned firsthand that pursuing all that is like the chasing the wind. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. And here he says this, man, I thought about wisdom. I applied all of my mental faculties to to that. I I even thought logically through the alternatives to wisdom, which is madness and folly. I took folly and madness to their logical conclusion, and they all lead to the same place. They all lead to no answers. They all lead to futility. They all lead to sorrow. And Solomon's the wisest man who ever lived. I mean, if his brain couldn't figure it out, then none of our brains are, right? Solomon. And his conclusion here is the quoting of another proverb. You'll notice the indentation in the text. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. More knowledge is more sorrow. Quoting something from society there that they would say over it. We have a similar saying. Ignorance is what? Bliss. And isn't that true? Ignorance is bliss. Children, you are so blissfully blessed right now. You think society just happens, right? Food lands on the table. You wake up in the morning, somebody's taking care of you. You think this is going to go on forever. Your time is short, buddy. Talking to you right here. Your time is short. You enjoy it while you can. Because in reality, the more you know, the more there is to worry about. Have you not experienced this? You think about, for example, uh, we think about our country, and isn't isn't it great to think that somewhere there is these amazingly smart people that are in charge of our national security? And that somehow they are... You know, they're like a cut above the rest of us. Somehow they have almost an omniscience about all the bad guys and everything that they're doing and, you know, that we we dwell secure and safe because we have these amazingly smart people that are keeping an eye on stuff. And then it comes out in the news, the kinds of things that are going on in even our national security, and what does it make us do? We get scared, don't we? Like, 
they're not any smarter than we are. We're in trouble around here. Or maybe you've worked in a company and you kind of started off at the you know, bottom of the org chart, blissfully at the bottom of the org chart, and you just thought, man, this company's awesome, and everything's safe and secure, and it's wonderful, and over time, maybe you got promoted into management, and you start hanging out with the people actually running the place, and you realize, this company is in serious trouble. I didn't know the guys that were running this place were like this. They're just like me. Or maybe you young people, you go to school every day and you think, these teachers are fantastic. To be a part of a school, I mean, the educational system, it's like heaven on earth. Everybody gets along. Everything's wonderful. You say, I'm going to go into education because it's the one sane place in the world. And your first day, then you go into the teacher's lounge and you think, Ignorance is bliss. The more you know, the more there is to worry about. One translation says it this way, the wiser you are, the more worries you have. The more you know, the more it hurts. So to ask the question, well then why why is man's search for wisdom so futile? And the answer to this, friends, is that it doesn't matter how much you come to know, you still die. Doesn't matter how many PhDs you have, in the end, you're dead. It doesn't matter how big your library is or the books that you've read, in the end, you're dead. It doesn't matter what your GPA was in high school, college, graduate school, doctoral program, postdoctoral work, in the end, you're dead. How awesome it would be to be at a university to think academics is the answer to man's problems. And then you, like I did at the University of Chicago, I walked through a hallway because it was cold and I took a shortcut, walked right through the MBA program there, Kellogg, what's it called, the Kellogg uh, College of Business, and uh, see on the wall all the professors that have taught in that very esteemed school, nationally, internationally known, and they're all dead. They're all dead. And death logically looms over intellectualism and all of man's mental attainments. And Solomon says, in the end, what good does knowledge do? And to give you an example of this, a quote that I use in my book that has haunted me somewhat since I have came across it, because I think it's so powerful, I'd like to read to you here, share it with you, and it's from... Uh, a French philosopher, atheist, nihilist, feminist named Simone de Beauvoir, Beauvoir, I should say. Somebody will correct me on that probably. But she was uh, a close associate, perhaps a lover even, of the famous atheist Jean-Paul Sartre. And she writes, looking upon her coming death, she writes from a perspective of horror. Here's what she says. I loathe the thought of annihilating myself quite as much now as I ever did. I think with sadness of all the books I've read, all the places I've seen, all the knowledge I've amassed, and that will be no more. All the music, all the paintings, all the culture, so many places, and suddenly nothing Nothing will have taken place. I can still see the hedge of hazel trees flurried by the wind and the promises 
with which I fed my beating heart while I stood gazing at the gold mine at my feet. A whole life to live. The promises have all been kept, and yet, turning an incredulous gaze towards that young and credulous girl, I realize with stupor how much I was gypped. And then, uh, actually, a Catholic theologian reflects on Beauvoir's angst here and writes this, refreshing honesty, yet for the thoughtful atheist, death must loom as a crushing catastrophe. Everything good, noble, beautiful experience throughout life is about to vanish, not simply for a week or two, not only for a century, but forever. On the atheist premise, death is a nightmare unbroken by a dawn. And that statement there is that's a powerful statement. That if you're a materialist, if you are an atheist, if, if you are an intellectual atheist, in the end, your existence can only be viewed as a nightmare unbroken by a dawn. You ever have a nightmare and then you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm so glad that wasn't reality, right? Whew, and there you are in your room and you know everything's great again. For the atheist, death is just nothingness, and you don't wake up from it. It is forever. And man's reason, it doesn't start with God, it doesn't take him to God, but it does take him to death's certainty and the futility of knowledge in the end. Because in the end, it doesn't matter how much you know, you still die. It doesn't matter how many PhDs you have, you still die. It doesn't matter how much uh, or how many books you've read, you still die. No matter how much you have intellectually discovered, no matter how famous you are for what you've understood, you still die. And man's wisdom is all twisted and contorted and cursed, and it cannot bring the intellectual to what he is actually wanting to find. And what the intellectual wants, who is thinking according to the, the thought patterns of Ecclesiastes, is he wants eternal, conscious life. But logic takes him to death and futility. Now, I told you, you have to read Ecclesiastes with three eyes. Three eyes. One on Genesis 3 in the fall, one on the text, and one forward to Jesus. And here we have a great example of how Jesus looms in the background of the despair and futility of Ecclesiastes. Because you get to the New Testament, and the Bible talks about Jesus not only being wise, but being wisdom himself. He is the wisdom of God, the Bible says, the starting point of true wisdom. Listen to the Apostle Paul, who writes this in 1 Corinthians 1. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And what Paul points out here 
is he points out man's wisdom at its root problem. The root issue with man's wisdom is that his starting point is himself. Or to say it another way, it is pride. Man wants himself to be judge, jury, scientist, intellectual, philosopher. I am the one who decides what is true and what is not. I am the starting point. My reason leads me to my conclusions. And then the cross and Jesus comes along and it's completely counterintuitive to the intellectual materialistic pursuit of knowledge and truth. Not that it is unreasonable, but you cannot reason your way to God. It's kind of like our daughter, Kiralee. She, I love her, okay? So bear that in mind. I love her. But we're trying, she's got a little thing we're trying to parent out of her right now. Where when she, when we, when we put her like in her car seat or to eat up in her little chair that she sits in, they always have these little buckles and things like this. So sometimes I'll go to like, like buckle her in and she'll very quickly say, I do it. Now, I like a certain independence, right? That kind of, I'm going to get after it, I'm going I'm to do it. I like that part of it. But I think the way that she says it, this is not so much about uh, that as much as it is this human desire. We want to do it ourselves, don't we? I do it. I am the starting point in this. And as we think about academia, intellectualism, reason and philosophy and all these things that have dominated the human story, so often that is its fundamental problem and issue. The exaltation of man, I will solve this. And out of that then flows man's problem because he never gets around to the actual answer by pursuing it with himself as the starting point. And this is why the gospel is so offensive to people who are completely materialistic in their worldview. Because the gospel comes along and it says that salvation is not something, it's not I do it, right? It's not I do it. I, I can't do it. The gospel is that God has done it, that Jesus came and did it on our behalf. And that, that I, I, I save myself, not by reasoning my way to an answer, but rather by receiving the gift that God has provided that untangles the gnarl of my heart and soul and provides to me new life. I don't do it, I receive it, it is a gift. I get no glory from it. Human pride, my pride is not stroked by it. In fact, it is crushed by it. I come to the cross, I come humble, I gotta acknowledge I'm a sinner. And that's why even in our society today, you think about just what it means to bring up God in an academic setting or something about the gospel or Jesus, it's like, you know, they, they just will torch it because it's just so, oh, don't even bring that up now. The pride, knowledge puffs up, the Bible says. And this is the basic problem. Salvation is about God's effort on our behalf. And Jesus embodies then this truth. And that is why so many people hate him, use his name as profanity, mock him. 
He is described in the Bible as the Word, the divine special revelation of God. And that's what mankind needs. Our reason, there's all kinds of gaps, things that we can't understand. What's crooked cannot be fixed. It is what it is. We need God to explain to us what is real and true, and that is what the Bible is. The Bible is God filling in the gaps with special revelation, things that my reason can't get me to. And Jesus embodies the special revelation of God. He is the word that became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And that is the truth that explains the universe. And great thinker Stephen Hawking is an example of this, that his whole life, he's been pursuing some, the theory of everything. If you saw the movie last year, the theory of everything, trying to explain one, one explanation for all that is and his amazing intellect applied to that. And yet he never comes to an answer because he cannot. Human wisdom wants to become the answer, but in reality, the answer became human. Now, I highlighted that because I thought that was a really good sentence. (laughs) May I say it again? Human wisdom wants to become the answer, but in reality, the answer becomes human. And that is what Jesus is. God's answer to the tangled mess of the world that we live in. And we find with Jesus that he solves then our most unsolvable riddle, which is not cats and dogs and national debt and all the rest. Our biggest riddle, the Rubik's Cube of our story, is death. This is where philosophy fails, right? But the gospel shines. And the way that Jesus solves this riddle, if I go back to my fishing analogy, is that he doesn't get in there and try to untangle the knot and all that. He cuts the line. He restrings the pole with an entire new life. New life is what the Bible calls it. An entire new perspective and truth. And it's based upon the power of God. The gospel is the power of God to all who believe. And the the, the, the big statement that God made is the resurrection. Jesus conquered death. This is our riddle, death. He conquers death by the power of his own resurrection and promises that all who believe in him will also be resurrected and are given the one thing that the philosophers seek so much, which is eternal conscious life. God gives that to us also as a gift. I don't do it. God does it. He gives it to us. And this solves then what Hawking and Sartre and Nietzsche and Dawkins and Freud and Darwin, I just made a list of famous intellectuals, they could never figure this out. And you can go to their grave and you can just sit by their grave and be amazed at their intellect, but they're dead. They're dead. And Jesus was resurrected on the third day by the power of God, and it is his resurrection that eliminates death's ultimate riddle over us and gives us hope in this life and a confidence about the next. And logic can't accept that. Not logic that begins with a closed universe and there is no God and there is no supernatural. They'll never accept that. But the Bible in special revelation says that there is a God and that he is amazing in his power and amazing in his love and that he has a son 
that he sent into this world. My mind would never come up with that. I could stare at the sky and I could look at creation all day long. I'm, it's not going to get me to that conclusion. But the Bible tells me that story and the gospel is truth. It is truth. The power of God to all who believe. And so I just want to ask, like, what about you? Okay, what about you? I sometimes run into people here, they're like in an intellectual pursuit of answers to life. And that's awesome and great. If you're like the woman that I began with telling her story, where you intellectually get to the point that it's all absurd and yet something inside of you says, there's gotta be more to this. You can't reason your way to God. It takes faith. It takes faith to believe. And I wonder what is keeping you from believing in God's answer, the answer that the philosophers and the academic world will never provide or promote, but which God has provided through his son. And you can't do it. You can't be like my daughter. I do it. Pride will never be saved, but humility will. And to receive this by faith. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He just lays it out there. And that means it doesn't matter if you're a boy or girl, educated, not educated, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. Those things don't matter. What matters is whether you believe and receive the gift of salvation. And you can do that right now, wherever you are, right now in this room. So you know what, I do believe that. I believe Jesus is the savior of the world and is my savior. And to put your hope and trust in him. It led at least one woman to faith in our church. And I hope it uh, does the same for you.